0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk.
0: Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Tuesday, March 24th. And today, guys, I got to tell you, this is a hell of an episode. My guest today is Mark Yusko. Mark is the founder of Morgan Creek Capital Management and has been investing in markets for decades, has an extremely wide-ranging view on the world. And today we just let it rip. We talk about why Bitcoin fell with stocks, why there is a difference between price and value, why stocks are of fundamentally manipulated assets, why buybacks should be illegal, why cronyism is not capitalism, the cost of propping up zombie companies. We get into the extremely important and painful and all too politicized conversation about the cure being worse than the disease and whether that's the case now. We talk about the cost of a zero-risk tolerance in society. We talk, importantly, about the polarization of health versus economics as though there wasn't solutions available that didn't have those two things as mutually exclusive. We talk about why Mark thinks there should be a market holiday because it can't price anything right now. We talk about why Bitcoin is the only free market, the last free market. We talk, even on the granular level, about why big market announcements happen on Sunday. We talk about the future and why we're headed to debt jubilee, and we talk about why Mark thinks there is a non-zero probability that President Trump tries to cancel the election. There is no one single overarching theme, although I think that there is a palpable frustration that you'll hear from both of us around the trying to box everything into one extreme reaction or another extreme counter-reaction, and why The over politicization of everything and the scorecard nature of everything from our politics to our markets leads us to these types of scenarios inevitably. In fact, inevitability is a big theme, the inevitability that we were going to get to QE infinity. So, this is, I think, one of the most wide ranging, important episodes I've done. I know that you're going to enjoy it. So, without further ado, let's dig in. Now, as always, caveat with long interviews, we edit these very, very minimally to Capture the feel and flare of the whole conversation, but that said, let's dive in. All right, Mark Yusko, thank you so much for joining today. No, Nathaniel, thanks for having me. It's
1: great to uh, chat this morning.
0: Yeah, so we, we were just discussing this. You know, I was—I told you I was listening to your podcast with David Nage on Base Layer, uh, which was just on March twelfth, right? So like twelve days ago, and it—it it literally feels like a hundred years since then in
1: terms oh of how the gosh. It it does feel like 100 years ago, and, and it's, it's so eerie, the world in which we're living and which time is kind of standing still, and, and you don't see people on the streets. You don't see people driving around. You know, We're still a little bit active here in North Carolina. We're not on full lockdown, but it's a very strange time. Yeah, so
0: I I I honestly don't even know where to start. But I was writing down. I was thinking through like what's changed since that conversation. So March twelfth was obviously if you're a a Bitcoiner, it's the day that Bitcoin fell from eight thousand to six thousand, and then the evening dropped to like thirty nine hundred for a time before coming back. Right. So that's a day that'll live in Bitcoin infamy. It was obviously a day that was that was reflective of uh, of the broader market conditions. And since then, we've had a a, a few different things have happened. Um, you've had the introduction of first limited and now unlimited QE. You've had uh, a, a line of corporations lining up for bailouts and buybacks becoming the boogeyman of this crisis. You've had the complete inability for Congress to do anything in terms of both the main street need or the corporate need. You've had uh, the the politicization, I think, of the discussion of what's the right way to do things. And, and as part and parcel of that, the rise just recently in the last couple of days of a reopen the economy narrative, which is uh, not, I don't think, informed much by real policy, but just people being sick of being stuck. And then again, if you're in the Bitcoin world, you have a, a slight, since that low, you have the sign the start of some signs of, of decoupling and obviously this new narrative ar- uh, emerging around money printer go burr. So I, I mean, in some ways, the question is like, where do we, even begin. You know, what uh, what's on your mind right now? Like I, you know, I know that you've been thinking through all these things, but what stands out about the the moment that we're in right this right at this moment, I guess.
1: No, look, you summed it up so perfectly that this has been just a, a cacophony of of things that are, are are somewhat related but but are so um, discordant in that that people are are unhappy about things they they are opportunistic about things. You know, I, I think the thing that has me the most frustrated is, is really the, the lack of understanding or appreciation or just the, the unwillingness to accept that you know, the actions that, that we as a country and as a world uh, have taken in response to, to the threat, to this virus threat, uh, may and probably will be worse than the threat itself. And you know, nobody wants to talk about that, and and uh, nobody wants to say it out loud. And I'll say it out loud because you know what? What people aren't taking account of, I mean, the Bitcoin drop twelve days ago was a great example. You know, I had all these people screaming, "You know what's going on?" I thought Bitcoin's a safe haven. I am like, guys, it is a safe haven as a store of value, as an ultimate currency for the long term. Kind of, like, you know, gold has been a currency for five thousand years. One ounce buys a fine man suit. You know, 875 paper currencies, three quarters of them have disappeared. The pound sterling, 374 years ago, one pound note got you one pound sterling, a pound pound of sterling silver. Today, it costs 374 pounds of sterling silver. So paper currencies devalue and go away and real money, sound money stays forever. But, But, but we're young in Bitcoin's life and Bitcoin is owned by two types of people, maybe more than two, but really two. One is hodlers, right? people who who own it, believe in it, want it to be their store of value. And then speculators who are like, hey, this thing moves. I, I like things that move. I'm going to trade it. And the problem is people bought in sometime after the the low back at, at 3,100 in December 18. And they didn't get it right at the bottom. They got it sometime in the 4,000, 5,000, whenever it was. And they wrote it up. And we had the big rally up through 12,000. And then it starts to roll over again. People are like, wait a second, wait a second. Well, those were weak hands and some of them started to sell. But when this crisis hit and stocks started being liquidated and hedge funds started being liquidated and you know, individuals started getting margin calls, in a margin call or in a liquidation, you don't get to sell what you want to sell. You have to sell what you have to sell. You have to sell what's liquid. And there were a lot of hedge funds and a lot of individuals, um, individual investors that bought Bitcoin, not really understanding or caring what it was or what it is, but they just wanted it because it was moving. And so, the fact that it fell dramatically when everything was getting liquidated should not have been a surprise to anyone. But again, I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin space, you know, just by definition, I mean, not by definition, but just by happenstance, happened to be younger, happened to not have a lot of experience in the markets. And so they weren't there in the 2008 liquidations. They weren't there in the 2002 liquidations. They weren't there in the 1994 liquidations or the 1987 you know unwinding of portfolio insurance. So that's a long answer. I actually don't do short very well, Nathaniel. Um, <laughs> Not, me,
0: me neither. We're uh, we'll be, ch- I'll canceling my next meetings, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. But you know, I think you, you bring up so many good points. So, so one was, you know, Bitcoin is still a safe haven. It doesn't change the volatility of the price. Doesn't change the essential nature of the asset, and that's the thing that gets lost in both bull markets and bear markets. You know, people look at at Boeing and they say oh you know this this was a $400 stock you know just a couple couple months ago and now it's $100 and i should buy it I'm like well no the the price of the stock doesn't reflect the nature of the underlying business the price of the stock is just what two people will buy and sell something for 100 shares on on uh, an exchange and the value of a company is is the value of a company or the value of an asset is the value of an asset but the price is just an ephemeral reflection of supply and demand. And so when when Boeing was going up, it was going up because people saw it going up. And so they bought it and they didn't really understand the value. When the, when the MAX started crashing, the 737 MAX started crashing, and then they realized, huh, there's an engineering problem. Huh, oh, wait a minute. It got through approval, government approval, even though it has this engineering problem that causes crashes. How did they do that? Oh, well, they paid a lot of money into lobbying. Oh well, maybe that's worth less. Maybe the value of that business is lower, and you know, yeah, maybe they're going to get a bailout. They probably are going to get a bailout because they're you know they pay a lot of money into lobbying, and you know, bailouts, buybacks. You said it; they are the the pariah of this cycle. You know, the idea that that companies have been manipulating their stock price. Uh, you know, again, people talk about Bitcoin being manipulated. Stocks have been manipulated like crazy. Like never in my career, and you know I have white hair to prove that I'm old. Um, it it's been a long time coming to to get to this point where you know the stock market is. You know, I tweeted about it yesterday. It's just a just a casino, and they should close the casino because there's no price discovery going on. You got financial engineering going on. You got uh, companies borrowing money at, at you know basically zero because we the Fed is. Put interest rates to zero, borrowing money to buy back their shares, which financially engineers their earnings per share. And then the, the sheeple, you know, buy the stock because it's moving and they don't do the math. And my favorite is Apple, right? Apple, you know, went up almost a hundred percent last year. But their earnings were the same as 2015. How can that be? Well, their earnings per share went up because they bought back stock. Well, why did they buy back stock? Well, because Warren Buffett bought the stock. And he likes to get, you know, buybacks and dividends because it juices his returns in the levered structure with no taxes. So it's all interrelated. And and we're at this very interesting junction where finally, with this, you know, uh, Corona crash, triggering some realization of wait, wait a minute, maybe I need to look at valuation. Maybe I need to look at underlying cash flow. Maybe I need to look at things that that have a durable franchise and and just aren't speculative bubbles. And there are so, so many examples, companies that were selling at 20, 30, 40, 50 times revenues. Forget earnings. You know, my favorite to pick on was Beyond Meat. And full disclosure, like we made a lot of money on Beyond Meat. We were early venture investors. Uh, We sold as soon as the lockup ended. And, you know, we actually made 50 times our money. Which is pretty amazing. That's awesome. But the the company was selling at over fifty times sales when it got into the two hundred dollar price, and you know I think it could fall from here. I think it's down in the fifties. I think it could fall seventy five percent from here and still be overvalued. Crazy.
0: It's funny, actually, uh, Beyond Meat story. Um, one of the things that we've noticed a lot, we have a, uh, a a mixed dietary household, and so Beyond Meats are around a lot. And uh, when people started to get real nervous a couple of weeks ago around here and the grocery stores started to get uh, kind of cleaned out, there was still... Freezers of Beyond Meat, which I think probably reflects that we live in a, a an older town, you know, that's outside of the city more than anything fundamental. But it was a, a funny little note. Um, I want to go back to Boeing for just a second. I think that there's this, there's something interesting about uh, you know the the buyback conversation is. Uh, is is interesting to me because it has, uh, it's it's not totally bipartisan per se, but it is one where there are, you're seeing, you know, uh, uh, folks, uh, you know, prominent right commentators rallying against this as well as kind of far left folks. And I think one thing that makes Boeing so interesting about it is that in, in most conversations about buybacks, it's largely a financial engineering question and the dynamics aren't necessarily clear to people. And the cost, the cost and the consequence aren't clear. Whereas with Boeing, you had planes crash uh, because of Presumably, or or potentially, a, a lack of, um, you know, a, a lack of focus on engineering on R and D, and so people get this contrast, rightly or wrongly, where if this money hadn't gone to this financial engineering thing, it would have gone into this other thing, and the difference is, you know, human lives. And I think that that's a, a usually when it comes to these sort of boogeymen, you need some crystallizing force or image, right, that people can hold on to that's not uh, that's not intellectualized in a way
1: yeah look I again I think it's it's perfectly summarized, and uh you know I love how you've done your your background research on on thinking through the great questions to talk about and you know you think about this exactly as as you described, you know buybacks in and of themselves are not completely evil now you know I'm actually not one of these people to think oh they're the same as dividends they're actually not um, and people forget that up until 1982, buybacks were illegal. They were considered insider trading. I actually still believe that they are and they should be illegal again. Uh, if, if you want to dividend out cash to shareholders, that's fine. But buying back stock is is very different. And I don't want to go into all the details of, of how it's different, but it, it's not the same as sending cash back to shareholders because only the people that that sell the shares benefit from a buyback. So different. All shareholders get a dividend. So ultimately I think you said it very well in that had the money been allocated to higher and better use which would have been R&D and uh, safety testing then you know we'd have a much better outcome but this is true across the whole series of you know you said people have their hand out begging for assistance because we've we've had this disruption right we've had this this disruption and, and you know I I'd love to spend some time talking about the disruption. And like I said, I, I think the cure is way worse than the disease. And I'm not saying that d- that, d- that the disease isn't a bad thing. It, it is. Um, but the, the cure is, is way worse. And I actually believe more people are going to be harmed, maybe even pass away from the cure than the disease uh, over the long term. When we talk about the impact of, of bankruptcies and homelessness and and all kinds of things that are going to happen, uh, because of this you know overreaction. But if you think of just buybacks and and bailouts, if if you look at the airline industry, the cruise industry, um, restaurant industry, everybody is now saying government, government, give me money to help me. Like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Okay, give you money how? Well. Give me money so that my stock price goes up, and and, and then everybody wins. I'm like, well, no, no, not everybody wins because again, your stock price wouldn't have gone down as much had you had money for a rainy day to be able to um, combat some of the the, the impact of, of what's going on to in order to you know get through the crisis. Uh, we've had temporal crises before. Yeah? After 9-11, people didn't travel, and stocks came back without a bailback, uh, without a bailout. Uh, in the Great Global Financial Crisis, we did go to the mat for you know a couple of the automakers, uh, GM in particular, and but we did it in a way that the old equity got wiped out, and that's the way it should be. Is equity is a contingent claim; it has risks you know debt is a contractual claim you must get paid back or you can sue equity is a contingent claim therefore it has more risk and you get a higher return that's why equity investors make more money over the long term than bond investors and the idea that we're going to socialize that risk and bail everybody out i think is insane because it breaks then what you do is you break down the entire financial system that we all believe in which is if you take intelligent risk, you get compensated for those risks. When you take unintelligent risk or you do unintelligent things, you get penalized. But if you socialize risk uh, and make everybody um, pay pay back those that lost money, as if losing money is a bad thing, I, I just think the, it's, it's a very slippery slope. And I think we've been on that slippery slope for a while in that you know we've We've kept the stock market elevated by doing, I think, ill-advised things with interest rates. I think you know, cutting interest rates as quickly as we did back in 2015, 16, 17 uh, was ill-advised. I think we should have been you know raising rates and be, oh, but we would have caused a recession. Like, what's what's wrong with recessions? Recessions are actually good. They cleanse the system. We get rid of the weak companies. That's how capitalism is supposed to work, right? We're supposed to allow the weak to go away. We're supposed to encourage the strong to survive. We're supposed to give the tools uh, for all companies to compete and and build markets. Instead, what we've got is cronyism today. Whereas if you're well-connected to the president or the administration, you're going to get a handout and you're going to continue to exist. And The stat I keep going to is zombie companies. 38% of the S&P 1500, so the biggest 1500 companies, 38% can't service their debt with their current EBITDA. Forget paying back their debt, they could never do that. But they can't even service their debt. So Interest rates have to stay low, they have to be zero, and they're going to be zero for a long time um, because of what I talked to about is the killer Ds. Uh, demographics, bad demographics, too many 65 to 85-year-old people who don't spend a lot. They like bonds, not equities. Then you have too much debt. And when you have too much debt, you can't afford to service it. So you got to have low interest rates. And then we have uh, deflation. And deflation comes from uh, you know, basically competition is one, but also just a, an abundance of caution and hoarding. And again, that's why I think the response to the crisis is going to cause a more deflationary environment because people are going to hoard and not spend.
0: So it's really interesting the the zombie companies idea, there's, it's a, from a different context, but Paul Graham, uh, you know, who's the founder of Y Combinator, has a famous post where he called uh, companies, he says, are either default alive or default dead. And default dead doesn't mean they don't have runway. It means that there's no plausible path from where they are to either getting to profitability or getting to another raise, right? And those companies, if you're default dead, the best thing you can do often is pack it up you know, return what you have left to investors. This is unbelievably painful. I've been in some, I I have dragged default dead companies along as a zombie for way too long. You know, it's very difficult if you're uh, the entrepreneur in that situation. But I do think that, you know, there's a comparativeness here uh, in terms of like, that doesn't, it doesn't serve anyone. It just sucks resources out of the system in terms of talent, in terms of, I mean, by any dimension, right? Um, and, And I think that, you know, so, so let's actually shift into this, the, the 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 dynamics of this uh, catastrophe that we're dealing with now, uh, as you requested, because to, from where I'm sitting, there's this fascinating thing happening, and and this is, I think, why we can't take our eyes off this thing and why it is so all encompassing is that you have a um, a cascade of bad decision making in a localized crisis. I mean, which happens to be a global crisis, but in a specific crisis, let's say, that are coming into contact with larger uh, structural heavings of the world, both in terms of the way that the economic system has been post two thousand eight, and I think in this one we're not talking as much yet about, but also in terms of the way that the global political order has been shifting for really more like the last thirty years, right? And because of that, this 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 coronavirus has actually set off uh, a huge array of uh, of additional crises. But let's start, I guess, with the the specific uh, the specific response, right? And this cure worse than the. Disease. Disease. from from where i'm sit like we basically had this window probably when we saw that the supply chain capital of the world was shut down to maybe try to get out ahead of it right? Instead, Marcus didn't react. Instead, they went to all-time highs, right? There's hundreds of millions, tens of millions or hundreds of millions, whatever statistics you want to believe of people locked down. And we're, we're printing all-time highs over here. Yep. Meanwhile, we get to a point, we deny, 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 deny until we shift over, literally overnight, two Wednesdays ago, from denial to terror in a single night, right? And that was the day, actually, it was right before you talked to David. That was that, that same night in a half an hour period, Trump finally said, this is a thing. Uh, Tom Hanks came out as having it, and the NBA shut down in, in literally a 30 minute period, and so you go from denial to terror in half an hour, and you get you can't not get an overreaction. And what's been missing in this whole conversation to me is specificity, right? Like we're just we're obsessed with the the scorecard of. Uh, pick your scorecard the scorecard of the stock markets, the scorecard of deaths you know the scorecard of whatever rather than saying like what does it look like to manage this and and because of that terror, everything has been painted with huge broad brush strokes and uh and unfortunately, I think that you can't what we're seeing now is that it's very hard to get people to fundamentally change their lives and shut things down this way a without conviction that it's the right approach and b without a plan for how you reopen it and and instead you're seeing neither and my fear is that what's going to happen is that we will have made things worse on literally every dimension for lack of just picking the right strategy intentionally
1: ah oh, no look so many great points in in that summary and yeah, you know, I think the the really important point is that shift from, you know, denial to terror is <clears throat> nonsensical. But unfortunately, it's reflective of the lack of leadership that we have in this country, and reflective of the individual spokesperson at at the top. You know, our tweeter in chief. You know, his his bombastic approach to everything is this all or nothing, in or out. You know, all. All caps. And so for for him to be in total denial uh, up to that point, and then to flip-flop and then say, oh, I've always thought it was a crisis. Uh, no, no, there's video of, of your total denial, right? So I think lack of leadership, lack of understanding of, of how economics work uh, is, is a big problem. But But the real issue for me is that suddenly... We went from the normal operating um, process of of life, which is in life, there are risks every day, right? There are risks that we confront. Uh, For example, I I got in my car this morning and drove to work. Now, it's not a very far drive. It's about four miles. It takes me about 11 minutes. But every single day, 3,800 people die in car crashes, Every single day. Now, I hope I'm not one of them. Obviously, but I I could have chosen that. Well, I want to have zero probability of getting in a car crash, so I'm just not going to get in a car. Then I have zero probability of getting a car crash. But a, a zero tolerance standard doesn't make any sense, and that's that's actually what happened with self driving vehicles. Right, we are we're going down the path of self driving vehicles. We're doing some testing, and and then there was that one death where the woman darted out from between cars late at night dressed in black and she gets hit by a self-driving car. And everybody says, "Oh, we have to stop." I'm like, whoa, "Whoa, wait a second. Why does self-driving's standard zero deaths and regular driving is 3800 deaths? That just doesn't make any sense." And I think the same thing's true here is, you know, we have many viruses circulating throughout the world at any one time. And but we don't have a, a, a scoreboard. I think your, your your analogy of the scoreboard is exactly right, right? We we've we've scoreboardized the stock market in the past three years. Since, you know, again, tweeter in chief, all he cares about is stock market, stock market, stock market. Although he's not tweeting about it now that it's lower than when he took office. But but we won't go there. Um, but here's the crazy thing: is by scoreboardizing coronavirus. Now we've created this fear and terror that perpetuates and and builds on itself. Again, one, because people are looking at bad data, right? We know that the data is bad. We know that there's not universal testing. We know that some of the tests have false positives or even false negatives. We know that the deaths are being miscoded in some areas, that there are comorbidity factors. We know that, that the data is bad. So why are we hanging on every little permutation of the data to stoke this, this fear? And, and the one that gets me really crazy is we, we quote total cases. So, oh, the total cases are up. Well, well no, no, no. But a third of those cases have resolved either with a death or with a recovery. And oh, by the way, the recoveries are way bigger than the deaths. So, but the fear is is really palpable. And so our reaction to that terror, and I love your word terror, our reaction to that terror was, had to be, as you said, overreact. So we overreacted and we said, all right, we're shutting everything down. Without one thought of what does that mean? What does it mean that an average restaurant has 17 days of cash? What does it mean? I, I got really angry at this because you know I was supposed to be going to the um, uh, ACC tournament on that Friday when when everything started to get shut down, and and I watched the guy from from the the NBA get our the NBA get up and, and cancel the season. And he was feeling like you know I'm such a good person, I'm such a social justice warrior. I'm like whoa whoa whoa. What about all those vendors who rely on selling all those hot dogs and hamburgers and Coca-Colas and T-shirts and tchotchkes? What are they going to do with all that inventory? They don't have any money now and they can't pay their bills and they can't feed their kids. And how are they going to survive? No one talked about that. No one talked about the impact of those people or, or that a restaurant, if you close a restaurant, and don't let people go to the restaurants, that in 16, 17 days, most of them will be out of money. They won't be able to buy new inventory. They won't be and so I just think that that the lack of thought of what it means to shut down a system for a zero tolerance. And zero tolerance was impossible. Because as you said, we waited too long to make the decision. Like it had we closed the borders, which i don 't like the idea, but had we done that right when we knew that there was a problem in China, and we didn't let anybody come into Seattle, you know, I grew up in Seattle, my brother was born at the hospital where the first person passed away. I mean it's kind of freaky to think you know Kirkland, Washington, where I grew up, was the epicenter of, of the crisis, but had we not let people come in from Wuhan, we probably could have nipped it in the bud but but we didn't do that, so then we said, well Okay, we're just going to lock everybody down. I heard a great thing this morning. I'm, I know I'm rambling, but I heard a great thing this morning. You know, we we closed schools, you know, colleges and and schools, and we sent everybody home. Well, no one thought about the fact that the young population has lower likelihood of getting the disease they have higher resistance to this to the disease and we had isolated all those young people together where yeah maybe they would have more people would have contracted disease but they have better defenses but instead we sent them home to their parents and their grandparents who now are actually having really bad complications and some are dying that was an unintended consequence that nobody thought about and so I, I I'm with you. There's there's no plan, and and there's no plan to get out of this yet. Every time we do something in response to the crisis, like we're going to pass this big bill, we're going to give away money to cronies who who spend a lot of money lobbying. I'm not sure that's going to fix anything. Um, I know it's not going to increase demand, and you know sending money to individuals okay that that has some potential to increase demand except most people are going to use that money to you know survive and to pay the rent that is now overdue and to you know try to buy some food and and maybe you know unfortunately they're going to have to pay down some debt cuz everybody's over indebted so i don't know that it's going to be enough to get us back to normal so
0: yeah it's it's not george bush trying to get us to buy an extra tv with a stimulus check exactly. you know what i mean uh, I th- I think the thing that's so frustrating to me is that because of the because the lack of a, of a real sincere conversation like that that starts with leadership and you know from from the top down but across so many different dimensions, we're creating a situation too where we're painting the the economic loss and the health loss as somehow mutually exclusive, and you're either on team health outcomes or team economic outcomes, which is total bullshit it's oh, a total It forces everyone into a camp where you're either you don't care about people dying or you don 't care about the economy, which is so ludicrous. And by the way, the the scary thing is because everything in our the structure of our of our media and, and especially our politics is designed to turn things into a team competition. What what's scaring me right now is I'm watching the rise of the the reopen the economy narrative, not from an intelligent like hey here's a plan right. We're watching now what's going on in Singapore and Taiwan. We're going to make sure that every building has uh, thermometers and that's the new thing. We're going to phase this in where uh, every health you know assisted living facility still stays out. Like there are millions of ways to be specific about this, right? Uh, And instead, it's just, well, that was really annoying that we stayed home for, you know, what amounts to a week. I mean, I'm in New York. So I'm in the place that's been under in this way, kind of for the longest at this point. And, uh, and people are just bored with it. So now we're going to shift entirely. That's, that's just as stupid a reaction, you know, and especially because again, going back to your point, I think originally about the uh, what the there's no specifics. Like, th- th- new diseases are scary, but this one we're learning a lot about really fast. And really, the issue in so many ways is hospital capacity—the capacity of our medical system to deal with it. It could have been a good decision a month ago to say, "Let's take those 15 days or three weeks or whatever, so that we can deploy the Army Corps of Engineers across the country to set up field hospitals with ICU beds, you know, and flip the ventilator machine." Like, you know, there are ways that it could have been because that's really. The the issue here is that over uh, what it does to that death rate, if the medical system gets over, um, it, it gets compromised basically, but it, that's not the conversation we're having. It's all yeah. reactive between no, big, no. broad brushstrokes.
1: Look, again, so, so many great points and, and, uh, I'll try to get to them, but the, the one, the point you make about, um, the polarization is, is so frightening to me. I mean, I had to step into a conversation between actually two really good friends, who were were going at this, and and it and it did devolve into uh, a Twitter debate of of you know life versus um, you know back to work, and and oh well, you don't care about deaths? No, no, that's not what we said at all, right? We're saying that that every thing that we do in the world has risks, and there are certain risks that are associated with. Everything from viruses to driving around to you know industrial accidents, I mean, there are all kinds of risks that we face. And to say that, that you don't want the cure, you know, the, the clamp down on, on stopping the economic flywheel to be worse and end up with more deaths and homelessness and bankruptcies and, and economic carnage than the, the, the deaths from the disease itself is not saying that you don't value human life, which is how this devolved. But the echo chamber problem that you talk about is is real. And what I don't understand, and this is true about about everything, is just because someone has a different opinion than yours doesn't make them a bad person. And in fact, you may not have the truth. They may not have the truth. Maybe the truth is somewhere in between, or maybe... (laughs) Imagine the other person has the truth, and you have a uh, an opinion that 's wrong i mean it, it does happen we 're all wrong sometimes, but debate and dialogue should be civil and they should be engaging and they should it should be encouraged and it shouldn 't be this oh, that person is on the left or that person's on the right there 's nothing to do with left or right or in or out. It has to do with let 's seek truth through dialogue and debate and this this discussion of Oh well, you know, ever again we want zero deaths. Well, yeah, that would be great. Um that's not going to happen. And this issue of of uh your your point on overloading the the um uh healthcare system. That's exactly. We saw that in the data in China, right? Outside of Wuhan, outside of Hubei, we had less than a 1% CFR case fatality rate. Inside, where they, they did run out of beds and they were putting people too close to each other, and they 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 made some errors. You know, we had a four percent death rate, and so they seized on the four percent, said, "Oh, this is a terrible, awful disease." Well, now what we're finding is absent a healthcare crisis. It really is more like the flu than than not. It has a higher spread rate than SARS and MERS, both of which had really bad. You know death rates. I mean, SARS was nine percent. MERS was a crazy thirty-four percent. One out of three people was almost as bad as Ebola at fifty percent. So, um, in fact, I've been watching the Jack Ryan series, and it just freaks me out because um, they you know, have all the stuff with Ebola and all these other things. Um, but this idea that uh, we're, again we're keying on the wrong data and we're being afraid of things that might not be there. But to your point, we could set up mass units. You know, mobile ambulatory centers, uh, and, and help solve that, the healthcare issue or, you know, the patients while they're still, uh, not in critical condition are mobile, right? Literally, if we had an epidemic in New York and we had hospital beds and ventilators in West Virginia, because they only have like 12 cases at, you know, forget they have no deaths, but they only have 12 cases. Why couldn't we put people on an airplane and move them? Because they're not in critical condition yet. And I don't know if that's feasible or not, but it seems like a plan. Or how about we pack up some of the ventilators and move them to New York? Maybe do that. So there are solutions other than just be forced into this this crisis. And yet the numbers, at least in the United States, don't add up. Right? We have 160,000 ventilators in the United States. I think there's 62,000 that are one type and then the rest are a little less good type. But 62,000 is still a really big number relative to one, even the number of hospitalized cases at this point and the number of ICU required cases. So unlike that little town in Northern Italy and unlike Wuhan, I don't see the same Risk factor at this point. And uh, everybody says, "Oh, but what about the exponential growth?" I'm like, well, again, look at the data where we have the most data—you know, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, Japan—all of those did bend the curve, and maybe they didn't even bend the curve. And clearly, I think they did. But the curve gets bent with time. This type of virus, a novel coronavirus, doesn't live forever. It's not like HIV. It doesn't, you know exist forever it is seasonal and whether it lasts just this season or whether it you know gets a rebirth in the fall we don't know yet but if you look at, at novel coronaviruses in history they are seasonal and you know unless this is a biological weapon which i don't believe but if if it were then it, you know all bets are off but if it's not and it's just a novel coronavirus that comes from a bat biting a pangolin and someone ate the pangolin which i don't understand why anyone would eat a pangolin actually um but I don't know. It's it's a long conversation, and and uh, a lot of a lot of permutations on it. I think
0: the frustrating thing is that the the window where you could have a reasonable position of uh, uh, of basically everything that you just stated, especially at the beginning, as it relates to economic policy. Unfortunately, I don't. What I see now is uh, there is a set. Of basically the political right in America that is now using this, and it's you're no longer going to have uh, the ability for people uh, on the left, right, or middle to have the opinion about reopening the economy. It's just going to get polarized into a right thing, right? When you have the lieutenant governor of Texas going on TV and saying that grandparents would die so that the economy doesn't open, like your your calm conversation and and structured debate goes out the window, and it's the same the machine of political discourse in this country just eats everything, but yeah. Uh, no, but, but, okay. it's a
1: really, it's a really, yeah. really important problem, and and one where the longer we delay, the worse it's going to be, right? And, you know, we're having this conversation here Tuesday morning, and everybody's excited because the futures are up, and there's been an announcement of the plan, and and there's going to be a you know a, a big boom just like we do every Tuesday. Why Tuesday? Going to call it turn, turn around f- Tuesday. And it's
0: weirdly it's weirdly specific how this happens. Fed takes action Sunday or Monday night. It doesn't really do what it wants. Somehow Tuesday gets more exciting again, and then people get scared again by Thursday, Friday. Like yeah, Thursday, Friday.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's really kind of interesting. Yeah. And and I, you know I have lots of you know thoughts about that, like the plunge protection team and you know the dark pools and all that good stuff. But but at the end of the day, that hasn't been enough. And you know you can see it, right? You can see it every morning from ten o'clock to eleven thirty stock market goes up every single morning. Why? Well, somebody happens to be buying from 10 o'clock to 11:30. and I don't know why they only work an hour and a half, but but that's what happens. and then and then we get some fear in the in the afternoon, mid-afternoon. and then from two to three, you know buyouts buybacks are allowed to happen and there have been less of those, but but there's still been some positive pressure. And then you know starting at 3:30, the smart money trades and that's the big institutional money and then the last minute of the day, Is uh, the ETFs and so you know yesterday we had the the big rally in the last twenty minutes trying to get us back from the the you know down five to down three but the the problem was the last tick um, was was pretty ugly right the ETFs were all selling um, and they always doing that last minute so I mean they always trade in that last minute they sometimes they're up sometimes they're down but they were down big last night so now we're going to have the the inverse and we're going to have this relief rally and, you know, short covering rally. And a lot of people have turned and gotten short. Um, But my problem and the reason I've actually been talking about why I think they should have taken a market holiday and should take a market holiday is you got, you know, human beings been banned from the trading floors. You got, you know, firms that have skeleton crews up. And, And so we're basically running with not full teams allocated to the markets and so the markets were already having trouble with price discovery before this happened. Now I think it really has trouble with price discovery and you know up nine, down six, up four, down seven, you know that's not normal. And so taking that's bitcoin yeah, exactly, that is bitcoin, all right that's bitcoin volatility and uh And yet you know here we are with Bitcoin you know recovering nicely from its its nadir. Uh, when people were getting liquidated and now the the hodlers are back and and the people who who believe in the long-term story are nibbling. And and that is interesting. You know, Bitcoin is the only free market. It's the last free market. And what I mean by that is there, you know, there's no Fed to intervene. You know, there's no one to, there's no dark pools, there's no plunge protection team. You know, it's interesting that every Sunday they make these big announcements. So why are they always on Sunday? Why are the announcements always on Sunday? Bear Stearns was on Sunday, Lehman was on Sunday you know, Washington Mutual was on Sunday and now this time, you know, you got the big announcement by the, you know, Fed cutting rates uh, before the meeting on Sunday. Why is it always Sunday? Well, every Sunday the the Council on Economic Stability meets and who who is that? Well, it's the Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary, the President of the Fed and the the presidents of the four big banks, JP Morgan, Citi, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And they meet, you know, at the New York Fed and and they make these big decisions and they do them on Sunday because you know, then they can act ahead of everybody else. Uh, but we know that there is this this pool of capital out there, um, whether it's driven by the banks or whether it's driven by the government, doesn't really matter, but we know it's out there. We know that it is functioning to try to keep the markets uh, more stable because they have this this goal of stability. Now, the Council on Economic Stability was formed after the 87 crash. So in the, you know, uh, so January, February of '88, and it's been functioning really ever since. And they just want to avoid the type of big downdrafts that occur in in open and free markets. And yet, you know, Bitcoin had that big drop that you mentioned at the top of the the pod, um, you know, two weeks ago. Well, yeah, because there was no one there to to buy it, other than the buyers and sellers, the actual participants in the market. And free markets are really good. I like free markets. I think they're the best. Arbiters of value, uh, and it would be nice if if we would allow you know the stock markets globally to go back to a time when when they were free again, and we could have some price discovery. So this is I, it's you know forty three minutes into a
0: nominally Bitcoin and Markets podcast, and I haven't haven't even asked you what you uh, what was your reaction to the unlimited QE, right? The unlimitedization of QE was this just inevitable in your mind? Oh, absolutely, was it inevitable.
1: Yeah, look, I even have a hashtag for it. You know, I'm I'm big on my hashtags, and everybody gets mad at me. Like, you know, you don't even understand how hashtags work. I'm like, no, you don't
0: understand. At least you make them up. I like that you make them up rather than like you're not looking for trending. You're trying to create the trend, right?
1: Well, no, no. I I don't even want to create the trend. And and that's what people say. You're so arrogant. No, they're a a virtual filing system for me. Mm -hmm. I I can do a search on one of my hashtags, and I can get every tweet that I've done. Related to that topic, and I can go back and review really easily um, what I think about, you know, second that emotion, or you know, my my one QE infinity, right, or QE forever. Uh, you know, I've been I've been doing hashtag QE number forever for forever for a couple of years, and look, once you start QE, you can't stop. And how do I know that? Well, because I've seen the movie before, Japan is 11 years ahead of the United States demographically. So whatever happens in Japan, 11 years later, it happens in the United States. So, you know, their market crashed in 1989, 11 years later, 2000, our market crashes. So their debt got downgraded in 1996, our debt got downgraded in 2007. So 11 years later, the same thing happens. And so what happened in 2007 is the Bank of Japan uh, owned 26% of the uh, Japanese government bonds as a percentage GDP on their balance sheet. And they said they were going to stop doing QQE. They call it QQE, quantitative and qualitative easing. And today, they're at 100%. Well, wait a minute. You said you were going to stop. So how did you get to 100? Well, we lied. So we can't stop because their debt to GDP kept rising and now is over 220%. And once look, once a government finds out that they can spend, they will. And you're seeing it today, right? We're, oh, you know, remember all of the Tea Party, right? The the right that was going to get elected, and we are never going to have a deficit again. You know, those evil Democrats that that were overspenders. We have the greatest deficit in the history of mankind, and we have Republicans in office. But I would say there's no Republicans, there's no Democrats, there's no left, there's no right. There's in and out. If you're in, you do or say whatever it takes to stay in, and if you're out, you do or say whatever it takes to get in. That's all it is. So. Um, and people, you know, switch parties and they run on different parties. Ronald Reagan was a Democrat. He ran as a Republican. You know, Bloomberg. I mean, all these people. You know, Mitt Romney. It, it's just in and out. People want to be in, but the the challenge is, I got on such a rant, I forgot my point, Nathaniel. Um, <laughs> what are we talking about? We're talking, we're talking about that the
0: inevitability of QE. That, oh, they, QE. You yeah. Can't, yeah. You
1: can't stop so it, it, it.
0: Basically, Japan, I,
1: I, Japan got yeah. to one hundred percent a debt to G, or a um, JGB that Japanese government bonds as a percentage of uh, GDP on the Bank of Japan balance sheet. So we got to, surprisingly, around 20%. And we said, we're going to stop. And we actually did shrink the balance sheet for a little bit. And like, no, this is exactly what happened in Japan. And as soon as the market goes down, which is what happened in 2008, Japan turned around and started buying bonds again. Same thing happened here. As soon as the stock market goes down a little bit, they're going to buy bonds. And we're going to be at 100%. Why? Because it's inevitable, because we have to monetize the debt. There are no natural buyers of debt of over indebted countries. The only person is yourself. And so, what's going to happen eventually is there's going to be a debt jubilee, and Japan will be first. And once they own all the government bonds, once they buy up all the government bonds, they just cancel them and they start over. He says, "Oh, you can't do that. The currency will crash." No, the currency crashes slowly while you're buying the bonds. The yen has been going down for the last seven years, and it's going to continue to go down, and eventually, it will be worthless, like every other paper currency in the history of mankind. And then the euro will follow, and then you know the the U.S. dollar will follow. I, I started tweeting lower for longer and headed to zero uh, about two years ago and just got lambasted on Twitter. People said, no, there's no way U.S. interest rates could be zero. They are, and they're going to be negative. And hell, the president of the United States is calling for negative rates because he doesn't understand economics. But for him, it's all about if I were a real estate developer, I would love to get paid to borrow money. And that's the way he thinks. So um, at the end of the day, governments spend because that's how they get elected. And they, they buy votes and That's where we are. We're in a place now where we're, we're, we're going to buy votes by giving people free money. Wait, that's what happens in dictatorships. That's the dictator playbook. right? You give away money to poor people and you cause them to be loyal to you. Well, where do the poor people come from? Oh, well, you create economic malaise. Well, let's take Venezuela. Venezuela has the highest oil reserves in the world, highest gold reserves in the world, at one point, well, one of the most wealthy countries in the world, well, what happened? A dictator comes in, he destroys the economy, he creates a dependency on, of the people on the government, and he stays in power, and it's a kleptocracy. The people at the top get really, really rich, and then you devalue the currency, and they devalue the bolivar. People forget, the best performing stock market in the world the last two years, Venezuela. Would you like to own Venezuelan stocks? Hell no. But that's where we're headed. That's the that's the path we're on. We've created this destabilizing uh, reaction to coronavirus. Some might argue that that's been the plan all along to create and foment fear and uh, political and economic destabilization, so that you get a dependency culture, so the people at the top can stay in place. And I'm going to put one thing out here, and people are going to are going to go ate bat shit crazy on this one. I guess bat shit crazy that's, makes sense. Me- that's,
0: that's, that term has new meaning now, huh?
1: Yeah, it does because it's it's coronavirus. But I'm gonna say there's a non-zero probability that uh the big guy tries to cancel the election because of the virus. That yeah. is a freaking scary proposition. That's
0: that is I've said that to friends and family that the single scariest thing to me from the like Ben Hunt has this phrase that he uses. It's kind of like he, he he doesn't have hashtags, but he does a similar thing where uh, you know, this is at epsilon theory on Twitter. He'll use these phrases to to provide both a rhythm for his readers, but also you can go back and see all of them. Um, you can't unring that bell. That's one that he uses a lot, and I think that that what what you're saying effectively, which I, I agree with, is that once you get into the game of the government propping up markets, the markets will forever say, "Well, why can't you do that again or a different version of that?" It's just natural, you know, and that becomes a force outside of the ability of anyone uh, to control for the political incentive reason. You know, this is just—I mean, it's just game theory in some ways. You it's know, a dependency uh,
1: culture, and it, it goes. Look, it's it's the participation trophy problem, right? Everybody gets a trophy. Look, I live in the People's Republic of Chapel Hill. They don't keep score in soccer. I'm like, "Why not?" Well, someone might lose. I'm like, "Well, that's why you play the damn game." I mean, losing is okay. Failing is okay. We learn more from failure than success. You know, you talked about it with entrepreneurs and startups, right? We need to fail. We need to have things go down. Not everything is a good idea. Not everything works. But everybody gets a trophy. In fact, my wife was horrified my my son we have a unique family, we have two older kids and a, and a younger caboose. and and you know, he was in his first soccer league a couple of years ago, and they went over, right? They did not win a game. And they had fun, but they did not win a game. And he got a little medal, and I took it and I threw it in the trash. My wife was horrified. Everybody was a horror. I was like, no, you don't get a medal for going over, right? You don't get participation trophies. And that's where we are is from participation trophyism, you get this dependency culture, which is, well, you know, mom and dad will bail me out, the government will bail me out, the school will bail me out, I don't like my grade, I'll just argue it and they'll give me a, a better grade. I don't like my salary, I'll ask for more. I don't, I don't like my outcome in the stock market. Well, the government will socialize it. No, that's not how it works. But that is how it works. If you're a government agent who wants to become a dictator, you want. Dependency you want everyone to not have economic uh, upward mobility and have to depend on government handouts and have to depend on socializing their losses and we're very perilously close, i think to that you know bang point that shift very scary
0: yeah i th- I think for me the 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 cat out of the bag problem uh is exacerbated uh by the potential of um uh, of uh, this disrupting you know uh, an election cycle for sure yeah. well it's a uh, crazy crazy amount to discuss and think through uh i i've been kind of ending on this question uh, for everyone, just because it's so uh, people are are exhausted too uh what what's your biggest cause for uh, pessimism right now? what's your biggest cause for optimism? and you can take that in any dimension that you want. It can be political, social, economic yeah, you,
1: look, know. you know pessimism we've already talked about it it's, it's from easy, it's easy from- see the last fifty three minutes of conversation right? yeah I mean, yeah it, pessimism is is lack of leadership. you know I believe everything comes from leadership uh, in fact, you know I believe it so much that. You know, my wife and I created a scholarship program at our alma mater, all about training leaders uh, and giving people the ability to to become better leaders. Um, and I think we have a a complete lack of leadership at at uh, you know all levels uh, globally. And I, I think it's 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 very scary to me. So so I think that's the biggest cause for pessimism. Is I think there's too much self interest. Uh, in in people of positions of leadership and and gone are the days of, of the uh, altruistic, selfless leaders. Now it's all about self-aggrandizement and and wealth creation for individuals, and they don't care about about the people. So I, that that's my biggest cause for pessimism, and I think it you know outcomes will reflect that uh, that that lack of of altruism and and more focus on self-interest. Uh, my my reason for optimism. Is, is the human spirit, right? We are we are resilient, uh, and I think resilience is is the the most important thing uh, there is, really. Uh, I mean, perseverance and commitment and other things are good too, but resilience is really what it's all about. Um, and you know, Seneca the Younger said it best, right? Failure changes for the better, success for the worst. And those of us who who are able to you know look at at uh, setbacks and and look at at untoward outcomes and, and look at loss in our life and, and pick ourselves back up and, and get better and learn from it. And, uh, you know, I live in North Carolina and Chapel Hill and, you know, the, the, the famous coach here, um, Dean Smith, had a great line. He said, you know, mistakes, mistakes happen, uh, bad things happen, but you have to Ralph. You have to recognize the mistake, admit the mistake, which is hard for most people, learn from the mistake and then forget it and move on. And you know the other coach across town at that other school that I don't like um, has another great line. He says, you know, great players and I use great investors or, or great people always focus on the next play. The average player, the average investor, the average person always focuses on the last play. So again, a reason for optimism is I think there are a lot of people who are able to focus on the next play. They they understand that some bad things have happened. They understand that we're faced with some tough times, but they're focusing forward. They're looking for the next thing. It's how Bitcoin got created. It's how, you know, blockchain technology is gonna revolutionize the world and be the greatest wealth creation opportunity we'll ever see in our lifetime. It's why markets will recover. It's why, you know, this too shall pass. You know, King Solomon's advisors were right. And that that we will get through this and it will be hard and, and we're gonna have to oust some of these, these bad leaders, and we're going to have to rise up. And, and so I want to end on an optimistic note, because there's a lot to be pessimistic about, the rise of nationalism, the rise of populism, the, the uh, pushback against globalization. You know, we're doing all the things wrong. I wrote a long piece about this two and a half years ago called Welcome to Hooverville. And, and I kind of talked about why 1929 was inevitable. In terms of a market correction and and potentially crash, because you know Sir Isaac Newton was right: for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And the bigger the bubble, the bigger the bust, the bigger the crash. So the nineteen twenty-nine like crash was inevitable, and I think we're in the midst of it right now. But what made it worse was the reaction of the government of Hoover and the administration in nineteen thirty. And I unfortunately believe that our current administration—he was only the third president with no experience after Hoover, being the second—was going to make the same types of mistakes. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. He calls himself tariff man. You know, we we marched Mexicans back to Mexico in the 1930s physically. Uh, we had the Mexican Repatriation Act. So the same playbook is happening. The same culture of fear. The same culture of. Of discontinuity, the same culture of you know self-aggrandizement, and and that we need to rally against, but not in a rise up populism, you know nationalism, America first kind of way as we did in the '30s, where we ended up in the Great Depression. If we want to avoid the Great Depression, we got to think forward. We got to think um, in ways that that are uniting. And globalizing and realize that, that we're in this together and that we can all come together and we can make it make it better. And we don't need Cold War 2.0 against China. We don't need to make them out like the Ruskies or the Commies. We need to embrace what they did right to you know, nip their crisis in the bud with, with the disease. We need to learn from Singapore and Taiwan and not think of them as, as Chinese. We need to think about unifying and uh so anyway, I, I am very hopeful, I am very positive. People listen to me all the time and say, oh, you're so negative. You I'm like, no, I'm a realist. The optimist thinks the, the winds are gonna change. The pessimist thinks they never will. The realist adjusts the sales. So let's adjust the sales, let's, you know, get uh focused on the future and let's let's make it a better tomorrow. <laughs>
0: I think the the thing that I always think about or or want to remind people is that if you didn't have any hope, why would you spend, you know, 60 minutes on a podcast talking about this? Why would you keep going on? You know, the the just because you are going deep on the real seriousness of the challenges that we face doesn't mean you're going to stop fighting. And ultimately, it's uh, like you said, it's what's next. So thank you so much for taking the time today and uh I really appreciate it.
1: No, it's great to be with you and I really appreciate the conversation and a lot of fun and hope we'll do it again.
0: Like Mark, there is, I believe, much to be nervous about now. I'm watching, even in the hours since I recorded that interview this morning, the politicization of the open the economy versus the save lives conversation just getting dramatically torn. This is now no longer two different approaches to how to solve a crisis it is becoming firmly entrenched in the american left and the american right and i believe that will be with absolutely disastrous consequences because it is stupid fundamentally stupid wrong headed and overly easy thinking overly social media thinking to somehow believe that these are two mutually exclusive outcomes and that you can have one without the other it is just nuts but it is as i said earlier in the intro to this episode inevitable based on the way that our system is organized right now. So I hope that you guys who stick around for long enough to hear the outro of these episodes, I know that you're the folks who are trying to think more broadly, who are trying to inform your own opinions and go be active participants in the conversation. And I have so much appreciation for you for that. So thank you for hanging out. Thank you for listening. We will be back with another episode of The Breakdown tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, guys. Peace.